When I moved back to Amherst, Nova Scotia after 15 years away, something had changed. Like many other towns, our local businesses and business people have been overwhelmed by large corporations and monopolies. This hurt the spirit of our communities. We lost our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our hope. So join me as I learn more about where we are now, how we got here, and what we can do to take back our communities. I'm Andrew Cameron, and Monopolies Killed My Hometown. All right, everyone, welcome back to episode 26 of Monopolies Killed My Hometown. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. And this week, I still want to talk about real estate again. I, I did find a third topic, a third episode I want to do on this. I do think it's going to be the last episode on housing for a bit. I want to get back into the price spreads report. I want to look at the grocery report the Competition Bureau released. But I'm going to spend some more time on housing. Because in the last episode, I talked about barriers to entry to the real estate development industry. And the two big ones that I mentioned in my mind are access to land and access to capital. And I want to talk about access to capital right now. So for me, like I look at it, like in the real estate world, we've been successful building our apartments and building our portfolio in Amherst and Yarmouth. But when I compare myself to some of the bigger players around, we're not really anything, right? Like we're not sitting on billions of dollars of cash that we could buy apartments or do what we want with it. That's not us. And so we don't have the same access to capital. We don't have the same access that the bigger players have. And so for me, I think about this in the context, if we were going to expand out of Amherst or Yarmouth, I get hesitant to look at doing that. And so that was one thinking that I had on wanting to talk about the access to capital first. But then a couple of weekends ago, I was talking real estate with one of my friends. He lives in Alberta with his family and he was home and we got talking about Amherst real estate and cottages. Because he was saying that when his grandfather moved into the town of Amherst, you know, he had a solid government job at the experimental farm and and he said that job paid him about $15,000 a year. And his grandfather bought the house in one of the nicer neighborhoods in Amherst for about $30,000 a year. So about twice his annual salary. And we got talking some more because I picked him up out of the family cottage he was staying at. And I said, you know, interesting, like my grandparents, they saved up and bought a waterfront cottage 20 minutes outside of Amherst for cash in I think late 1950s, late 1960s. And they were very proud. And that had such a sense of pride for them to have bought that with cash. My other grandparents moved to Amherst in like 1983 or 1984 and they paid cash for the house they bought. You know, and my grandfather was a minister and my grandmother was a substitute teacher. You know, they also raised four children. They weren't coming from a whole lot of like really high earning careers or anything like that. I mean, like right off the bat though, I mean, we do have to say, and this is a comment my mom's always made, is my grandmother was absolutely fantastic with money. You know, I think this comes from growing up in Glace Bay and living through the Great Depression. But the point that my friend and I were making when we talked about that, for us, the concept of paying cash for a house or even for a car is just unheard of. It just doesn't exist. And I don't know if we'll ever get back to that. And there's a lot more to this conversation, but this is where the conversation about real estate and the rising cost of housing comes in. Because for me, I would just think if you could buy a house for cash and own your house outright, or even just not owing any money on it, it'd be such a different feeling about it and such a stress relief not to have an ongoing mortgage payment, you know, moving forward. I was talking to another realtor friend in Amherst and he was talking about how he sees it's like RCMP officers and teachers that are now buying the $700,000 homes or above in Amherst. And so for me, like this just seems like a disconnect. 
And so when I think about housing and affordable housing is, to me, when housing is affordable, the community becomes stronger, right? People have more disposable money to spend on activities, services, goods, or they can just save the money. And so with more people having disposable income, chance of smaller businesses or small businesses surviving and having a broader customer base, like it, it can help grow the whole network throughout the economy that can then build upon each other. And so when I look at like there are studies out there that say after a certain point, money doesn't make you any happier, right? But look and you see if people are struggling to live paycheck to paycheck, that is a stressful, stressful situation to be in, right? Whereas compared to if somebody can save some money and get ahead, it's just, it's a less stressful way to live. And maybe, you know, with that less stressful way to live, maybe you're able to participate more in activities throughout the community. You could share the talents that you have with others. You know, you could get involved in service clubs. You could spend more time at the park with your kids. You could save up money. You could look for like a cottage or a summer recreational property. You could look at these things and do these different things. If you're worried about making ends meet all the time, it's hard to look at doing any of these other things in your community. And so I kind of got thinking about this when talking to my friend about his parents buying their house for twice the annual salary and my grandparents buying a cottage outside of Amherst. Because outside of Amherst, we have a, a lot of small communities that's like cottage country. And like, I don't want to sell, oversell this area. Uh, but for me, like I grew up there, I had cottages out there. My grandparents had the cottage that I spent time at. But, and so the waters on the Northumberland Strait, you know, between Nova Scotia and PEI, they say are the warmest salt water beaches north of the Carolinas. And I'm, you know, partial to them. You know, like when the tide goes out, there's three or four beautiful red sandbars. They're perfect for walks, sandcastles, maze tags, or any other games you can think of. When I was growing up, I'd spend, you know, weeks over the summer at the cottage with my grandmother. And when I was a kid, there were so many other families and kids running around the beaches and running around these areas that it was just like playtime for kids and for families and a lot of working class families. I loved going out there and spending the time out there. But now when I look at it, to buy an equivalent cottage like that, and I understand talking about buying a second property or like a recreational house or area is not available to everybody, right? Like I recognize and I understand that. And I think kind of where I'm going with this is for my grandparents, this was a choice. This was an option for them that they could work hard. They could save and do this but it doesn't even seem like it's an option for people now. Because to buy an equivalent cottage or get an equivalent cottage in that area of Nova Scotia, you're at least $200,000, if not two hundred dollars or $300,000. You know, and then you need 20% down and you have another mortgage payment for $150,000 and you have property taxes, insurance, and all this sort of stuff. It's unattainable for working class families that were buying the cottages two or three generations ago. Like I said, I'm not despairing for people who can't afford to buy a cottage because if you're in a position where you're uncertain if you can buy a cottage, you probably have a home and you're probably secure that way. I'm bringing this up because in context, it was a reasonable goal for a significant number of people at some point to be able to have a cottage or a cabin or a place that they could take their family and that they could spend time with their family. And there were these unbelievable communities that formed around the beaches. There was just a lot happening out in these areas throughout the summer, but they're dwindling and they're not happening quite as much as they were before. And so when I look at this, it's something that we've lost. People have lost sort of the excess capacity, either financially or time or worry or stress or emotionally. 
And I think that is connected again to the price of housing going up so much. If more and more of your salary and your income is going to housing, you just have less and less available for anything else, really. In the last two episodes, I've kind of talked about the goal is to just increase the supply of housing enough that housing becomes affordable again. And I talked about, you know, some flaws that I saw in those arguments. And I've talked about like municipalities are able to look at how concentrated their industry is and whether, you know, that industry is actually going to act against their self-interests and build enough housing to cause the price to come down. And I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. And I talked about some ideas for municipal governments or provincial governments to act to increase the capacity of the development industry just to build that new housing. And so one of those things I talked about was access to land, but now I want to kind of go to the access to capital. When I say capital, basically I mean cash. To develop real estate, you need cash to pay bills and to do the work. And really, like you can get capital from three sources, you know, personal savings, investments, or loans. The difference between a loan and an investment are really around who owns the actual asset. If you come to me and ask for money to buy a house, and I give you cash as an investment, I want to own part of your house. If you come to me for cash to buy a house and I give it to you as a loan, I want you to pay the money back with interest, but I wouldn't own any of the house. That simplifies it for sort of this conversation, kind of what I'm looking at right now. You can't get a loan without investment, right? If you're not putting cash into a deal, nobody's going to loan you the money. So you need access to both. And so when I look at it, the access to capital is one of the ways that dominant firms can really limit new entrants into the real estate market. And like I mentioned earlier on, it also can cap the size of small to medium real estate players. And so like, this is the thing that what I was getting at before, and this is what frustrates me. And I know there are much larger players than me and us out there who have access to cheaper and more capital or more cash than me. And I know that the playing field isn't level and I can't compete with them. This is the same as independent retailers can't compete with Walmart and Amazon and really Loblaws, the dominant retailers. I can't compete with the largest real estate players. Goals for our business was we want to get large enough to accomplish the goals that I set, but not become big enough to show up on any, anybody else's radar as needing to worry about us. And so for me, like I look at it, the fact that I could grow and move into other communities and other areas. I mean, I have the expertise to expand into bigger apartments and areas but I don't want to, or I'm hesitant because I'm stepping up to compete with larger real estate players to me is one of the consequences of allowing really this unfair market to develop. And so when I look back on it, I think there was a couple major policy changes that really helped create this. There's a whole episode that can be done on CMHC and the Canadian mortgage bonds. And I joke now that I mentioned, maybe I will kind of dive into those more. Maybe there will be a fourth episode that comes out of it, but this episode could get really kind of in the weeds and technical on accounting and finance stuff. That one on CMHC and Canadian mortgage bonds absolutely would be. Um, and so for me, like we've reached a size with our business where I have accessed some of these financing programs through CMHC, but you need to be a certain size to have hope to access them. Once you can access them, you can get access to lower mortgage rates. You can get access to longer amortization periods. There's all sorts of benefits but there's minimums, right? They won't look at any building that's four units or under. I don't know exactly why it is, but in smaller markets, that's predominantly what's being built. I mean, if you have two four unit buildings next to each other, you can combine them and then you can access the market this way. 
But a lot of the lenders who administer the programs won't look at any loans that are under two or $3 million. But for us, somehow we made contact with a lender at just like the right period of time when they were looking for business and we showed up and they wanted to work with us. And so since we were already customers, they've kept working with us, even though we don't always hit those limits that they set. So there's a whole conversation about that. The other one that I really want to talk about is the Real Estate Income Trust corporate structure or the REIT. This corporate structure is something we created and we've talked about corporate structures before. We can modify it, we can eliminate it, we can change it, right? In fact, the Harper government in the 2007, 2008 just removed the income trust structure completely because there was a whole lot of companies that were converting from like a regular corporation into an income trust structure for tax purposes and investment purposes and the Harper government just said no more. They just got rid of it, but kept a carve out for real estate income trusts with had some more specific requirements to meet them and stuff. Anyways, that's a whole other thing. Don't want to go too, too, too far down that way. But so REITs, you've probably heard names of them. Choice Properties, Cap REIT, Killam REIT. They're some of the largest landlords in the country. And so a REIT is really just, it's a legal structure that's designed to hold passive income producing real estate assets. There are more specific details, but generally a REIT is then able to sell units to investors. Like if it was a regular company, they'd be selling shares, but because it's a trust, they're units. And so the REITs can sell these units on a stock exchange, like the Toronto Stock Exchange, or they can sell them directly like as a, like as a private REIT. Most of the largest REITs you'd know about really are, on, are public REITs. And so the good thing with that is their annual reports are excellent for gathering data and seeing kind of what's happening with them. I did find a paper on the history of REITs in Canada. And I always knew one of the biggest advantages of this structure, like of a REIT, was if they meet certain requirements, which is basically distributing enough of their profits, they don't have to pay income tax. So the people who wrote this paper brought up that trusts also have less legislative requirements than standard corporations. That's as another advantage. I didn't realize this was the case, and I think it sort of closes or answers a question that I've had about REITs and their structures, which we'll get to kind of later on. And so the REIT structure in this current form we first allowed in 1995. And so this structure, I think, was brought in the 1990s really to solve the problem. Because one of the things that was happening was there were mutual fund companies and there were companies that were investing in real estate and people could buy shares in the mutual fund or the units in the mutual fund. But what happens is with real estate, you can't sell it quickly. So if you have people investing in real estate and you get a whole bunch of people who want their cash out very quickly, you can't always sell the real estate in time to pay everybody back. And so you end up with basically real estate runs where the price of real estate starts going down and then people want their investment back out of this mutual fund. And so buildings need to be sold quickly. And so they get sold at a loss or an even bigger discount and it drives the value of real estate down even more. Reading through the paper, this was happening in the early nineties in Canada. And so REITs were brought in, this structure was brought in to sort of help bring capital and cash investments into real estate in Canada and to avoid this sort of downward spiral that they saw in the early 90s. And so in 95, we changed the Income Tax Act, which what allowed REITs to be formed in their current structure. And so if they pay out enough, they don't have to pay income tax, right? There's a lot more to this and you can get far down into it. I'll post a link to the article if anybody wants to go out there and read more about REITs and kind of where they came from. For me, like when I think about it, most things that we do and people do, REITs were created to solve a problem. Then we took things too far the other way. 
everything seems to be cyclical. We seem to go, okay, this isn't working. We got to change something. So we modify something, we start doing it, and then we go too far the other way. And then we go, oh, okay, we went too far that way. We got to come back. REITs are an example of this. Because they did solve a problem because like for somebody just as an investor, REITs are excellent. You can invest in real estate without having the hassle of owning or managing the property. You can also sell your units quickly if you want to get out of that investment. So if you buy a house and then you want to sell it tomorrow, you can't necessarily do that very easily. If you buy a unit in a REIT, you can sell it anytime. Do you want more anti-monopoly news while you're waiting for me to record the next episode? Sign up for the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project newsletter at antimonopoly.ca slash newsletter. One of the things I think that happened in the mid-90s when we really allowed REITs to grow in the way that they have is I think they shifted the housing market from like a regional market to more of a national market. Because what would happen is once a REIT couldn't find a solid deal in their local areas, they could start looking afar, Right. This meant they could start comparing deals in Toronto and Halifax or Moncton and Winnipeg, Charlottetown and Regina, right? They're really just looking for the best deal and best assets to deploy their capital, not necessarily looking in their neighborhood or in their area. And so for me, I think that spread throughout the real estate industry from there. People started looking at it as more of a national market. And there were probably also other things in the 90s that happened that really allowed for this to be able to do this effectively. You know, technology changes, cell phones, uh, remote work. That made it easier in the early 80s when you had massive long distance bills. It may have been harder to manage properties from Halifax in Calgary. So this is something I'd love if someone could look into this to see if this did really happen. This is, That's my suspicion that REITs really kind of made the Canadian real estate market a national market, not a whole bunch of individual or regional ones. Backed access to capital in REITs. Right off the bat, as long as REITs are distributing enough of their profits, they do not have to pay income taxes. And the fact that they don't have to pay any income tax allows them to amass more cash and capital compared to other real estate players who do need to pay income tax at the end of the year. And so it's almost like the cash they get from not paying income tax is free capital, right? There's no cost to that money for them. Secondly, REITs are able to sell their units on stock exchanges, which means that if they want to get investors, what they pay out as, you know, their dividend or their distribution, I guess, is what it costs them, right? So choice properties, they pay out 5.57%. So that's how much it costs them to get investment money. Killing Properties pays out 4.03%. Somebody's not gonna come along and invest in my company for the same rates that Killam and Choice Properties are. I mean, for many different reasons, but that gives the biggest REITs an advantage over all the other players. And same thing here, especially as interest rates start going up. If an investor can, you know, put their money in a GIC and, you know, get 5% in interest, they're going to want more than 5% if they're going to invest their money with me, right? Because it's going to be riskier and there's all sorts of things like that. So that's one thing that I see is that right off the bat, like REITs have a lower cost of capital than other people in the industry. And so the other thing that happens, which is different with REITs than just a standard company, and this may be where the legislative changes or legislative looseness comes in, is REITs, when they create their annual statements or their income statements, they are able to go in and revalue their properties. Every year, they can go in and say, we think our properties are now worth this much money, and then they can increase the value of their whole company by this internal calculation that they've done. I can't do that. Because as a regular corporation, if I buy an apartment building for $500,000, I'm 
on my statements, it will always be worth $500,000. Even if the market price goes up, my statements and sort of the value of my company will always be that $500,000. So we've got to kind of cover a simple way that you value real estate, like value investment properties. Basically what you do is the value of your property is the operating income, which is the money you have left after you collect your rent and you pay all your bills, but not your mortgage, right? That's not factored into this at all. So the value of your property is the operating income divided by a cap rate. Cap rates are kind of elusive, kind of really hard to describe. They're a percentage and they're kind of connected to interest rates. That when interest rates go up, you think cap rates should go up. When interest rates go down, you think cap rates should go down. And they're a reflection on like risk people want to take on buying a property or not. But really, they come from the market. So if cap rate goes out and buys a property in downtown Halifax, when you do the calculation and they have a 4% cap rate when they bought that, that's the new market cap rate. So that number is not set by like, you know, the central bank saying interest rates are now 4% and everybody bases off that. Cap rates are really kind of set based on what people in the market are doing. I think the key thing to know is nobody's saying this is what a cap rate in this market is. It's kind of a hard concept to explain what it is, but they exist and that's how properties are valued. So we won't spend too much time on numbers, but I'm going to give you a quick example. So if you have a property that has a net operating income of $1,000 and you have a cap rate of 10%, so you go 1,000 divided by 0.10, is equal to 10,000. So again, same if you have a property that makes $1,000 and then you have a cap rate of 5%, like cap rates have gone down, that property is now worth $20,000, right? So that's how it works. The other way it works is, we'll go back to, say you have that property that's $1,000, 10% cap rate worth $10,000. If you increase the operating income, say by $200, the value of your property has now gone up to $12,000. Because again, you're going 12,000 divided by 0.1 equals 12,000. So if you can increase your operating income by 200 bucks, you've increased the value of your property by 2,000. That's how this kind of stuff connects together. Now we're using small numbers here. If you have a great big property and your operating income is a million dollars and cap rates are 5%, your property is worth $20 million. If you do something to increase your operating income on that property, say from a million to 1.1 million, same cap rate, the value of your building is now $22 million. And so what happens with REITs is every year they're able to go in and determine the fair market value of their properties and then adjust the value they have on their statements. I'm just going to pull this out of the Killam. I'm not picking on Killam or anything like that. So what happens is Killam Properties has a internal valuation committee that every year goes through and revalues all of their properties. And they report to senior members of Kilm's management team. Sometimes they hire external valuators, you know, so those would be the appraisal companies, Colliers, Altus, a few different ones like that. Every year they get to go in and revalue their properties, which as long as, you know, they're increasing, like if they're increasing their income and cap rates are staying the same, the values of the properties are then going up and they're able to go back out to sort of the market and sell more units, sell more shares, raise more capital that way by revaluating their own properties internally. And this is always a way for them to access more capital and access more cash that I can't, that smaller players can't. So there's a question of 
this ability for REITs to do this, one, reevaluating the properties and then going out and raising more capital, like if they were just standard companies, this isn't something that's generally allowed through typical accounting principles. Does that make access to capital and the real estate development market unfair and limit competition in that? Does it limit the number of new people who want to get into the market? Does it limit the ability of new people to get into the market? Because if you want to go into an area where Cap REIT's developing or Killam's developing or Starlight, like any of these ones, and they're sitting on billions of dollars, you're now going in to compete with them on these parcels of land, for contractors, for all sorts of things. And is that turning around and limiting people to get involved in the industry and grow into the industry? I think so, because... You know, it causes me to stop and go, I don't have a billion dollars. I don't want to try to compete with somebody with a billion dollars. I want to just stay where I'm at. Even though, like I said, I do have the experience and the capabilities to grow more. I go, you know what? Maybe we're just good here. So the other thing when I think about like access to capital is with the big players, with the big REITs really looking at the big centers, it pulls all the capital into the big cities the Halifaxes, the Monktons, Charlottetown, Toronto, Vancouver, and it increases the cost so that when people in more rural areas, so again, like talking to Amherst, I mean, back to the cottage, the secondary properties, the capital is also all moving to the bigger centers because you can get a better return and it's not going back out into the smaller areas. It's not available for new housing construction, new cottage construction, none of these things in the smaller areas. Because if you're an investor, it's less risky for you to invest in a property in downtown Halifax than it is for, you know, property downtown Amherst. And when the REITs have made the market national, you can invest anywhere in the country that you really wanted to, and you weren't really limited to sort of the area around your space. If I was investing in and around Amherst and somebody could get like a much better or much lower return in Toronto, it didn't really matter to me because my investment area that I'm looking at is around Amherst. If we want to solve the housing crisis by increasing supply, I see this unfair access to capital as another piece we need to address. And again, I hope that either CMHC or the federal government needs to look at these structures and what we've set up to see if there's changes that need to be made to help solve this problem. So. I hope you've enjoyed my third contribution on housing. If you enjoyed this, please like, subscribe, follow. Please share this with anybody else you know. Send me questions. Let me know what you think. Otherwise, we'll be back in a couple weeks and we're going to go back to the price spreads report and look at agricultural equipment. So take care, everyone. We'll talk to you later. Companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.